What I thought we'd do is look at that passage of the Bible that was read to us there from John in John 3. And I was going to take as a kind of heading, belief and destiny. Uh, so belief and destiny is our kind of overarching theme. Um, the key verse that we're going to be honing in on is found near the very beginning of the chapter there uh, in verse 3. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God until he is born again. So we're going to look at that and then see if we can understand what on earth was happening in that little conversation between uh, Jesus and Nicodemus. Now, 29 days since you made your New Year's resolution, wasn't it? How's it going? Is it working out for you? Or did you give up on uh, January 2nd? Um, my resolutions work really well. The resolution was never to make resolutions. I seem to be progressing quite well with that. I am not self-disciplined, so I don't give myself the trauma, the guilt of failing uh, my New Year's resolutions within 30 seconds or so. But I suppose as a people... We're always trying to make changes, aren't we? We're trying to adjust things, to get things just right. We're always trying to just make our lives that little bit better, trying to find the perfect job, the perfect partner, the perfect work experience, the perfect holiday, the perfect education. We want our lives to be perfect or as close to perfection as we can possibly make them, don't we? And we strive and strive and strive to make things that bit better. And when we come a cropper, when we begin to fail, when we don't quite get the perfect partner, job, education, uh, workplace, holiday, etc., etc., the world tells us, you know, just sit back, meditate for a bit longer every day, maybe work a bit smarter, maybe change your diet, maybe change your look to make it a bit more trendy and acceptable. And so we continue to make these small changes and sometimes we think okay i need to make a more substantial change in my life i need to change something completely and utterly and so we go through life making changes big and small and the question is how do we actually know if these things will work how do we know that the changes we're making will make us happier, will give us the life that we want? How, how can we drill down? How can we understand and determine what our best life looks like? Because it's a hugely difficult question, isn't it? How to get the best possible life? And it's difficult for many reasons. And I think one of the key reasons why it's really difficult is our hopes and aspirations and desires, they're changing all the time. Think back to your 16-year-old self, or think forward to your 16-year-old self. What did it want? Maybe don't admit to that. It, my, I wanted, like, beaches, parties, things like that. Um, that's changed. I want quiet Saturday nights in. I want coffee. My hopes, aspirations, desires have completely changed. And they're changing all the time, aren't they? Trying to find out the best possible life, trying to find out what our real destiny in life is, can be frustrating and it can be exhausting because we're changing. We're always thinking of something better. New products are coming out, which, ah, oh, that looks so much better than the one I've got. And so often we just go, get so tired, don't we? 
so tired of just trying to find the right thing that sometimes we just decide, okay, that's it. Head in the sand. Let's just forget about it and just hope that things work out well in the end. Yet what we have in this passage is a really clear and definitive message on the issue of destiny, on the issue of the best life. And, you know, the best life is promoted here by Jesus, and he is very clear, if you want the best life, if you want the best possible life, it can only be found in Jesus. It's all determined by your beliefs on Jesus, on who Jesus was and is. The message of John 3 goes against all that Western society will tell you. The message of Christianity, the message of Jesus here in this passage is that there is one clear way to have the best possible life in the here and now. And it's even so bold as to go further than the here and now and into eternity. Jesus says the best possible life here on earth is found in my kingdom and the best possible life is even extending from this world into the next world. And so this morning, what we're going to try and look at is where the best life is to be found and how you access the best life. Where it's to be found and how you access it. So the first heading I'm going to have here is the best life is found inside the kingdom of God. The best life is to be found inside the kingdom of God. When you visualize the best life, what does your mind turn to? Are you trying to keep up with the Kardashians? Are you wishing to be a Windsor? What what, is your vision of the best possible life? Each one of us has the aspiration, don't we, of having the best possible life. And internally we're tempted to think that my life's better, uh, that I can achieve more with my life, really. I'm better than what I've got. So Jesus is going to outline for us in these next uh, few verses what the best life will look like. And you know it's greater than your mind can conceive of. It's much greater. It's a much larger vision than you would have just of your own imaginings. But before we start to look at uh, the best life, where it's to be found, let's have a look at the context. What's going on here in John chapter 3? Well, what we have is the meeting of two great teachers. You've got Nicodemus on the one side. He's the conservative guy. He's been there a long time. He's the kind of the religious teacher of the establishment. He is a well-respected, well-established teacher. And he's, and the people like him. And then on the other side, you've got this kind of new kid on the block, this new teacher who's gaining a lot of attention from the common people. The working classes are flooding to this new teacher. And so what we have are these two teachers in dialogue, in conversation one with another. Nicodemus has it all. He is well-respected. He's a member of the Pharisees. And because he's a member of the Pharisees, he is seen to be morally impeccable. He is He's a good guy. He's a renowned scholar. He is the scholar. If you want to learn anything about God, you go to Nicodemus in Israel at that time. And also, he is a member 
of the most important court in the land. So within Nicodemus, you have the power of the attorney general, you have the brain power of a Professor Hawkins, and you have the moral impeccability of the Pope all wrapped into this one little bundle of human flesh. He's got it all. You wanted to be like Nicodemus. You would love to be this guy. He combines everything that you would think would be wonderful into this one neat little package. Now, it's clear from verse 2 what this well-respected teacher thinks about Jesus. Look at with me at verse 2 there. He came to Jesus, that's Nicodemus, at night and said, Rabbi, that's just a word for teacher. We know you were a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus to Nicodemus is an interesting teacher. And Nicodemus regards him as an interesting teacher because he's doing some pretty incredible signs, some pretty incredible miracles. I know these were not just massive optical illusions. These were real nature-turning, upside-down type events. Nicodemus realizes that Jesus is not somebody illusionist, that Jesus is doing real-life miracles. Nicodemus, the great religious teacher of Israel, believed that the signs and the miracles that Jesus was performing showed that Jesus had a special relationship with God. That he was having a relationship like some of the great Jewish figures of the past, like a Moses or a Jeremiah, great Jewish figures who had a very close relationship with God. And Nicodemus thinks that he can understand something about Jesus by the signs and miracles that Jesus was performing. But look at verse 3. Jesus strikes down his argument and declares to Nicodemus, you don't get it. That he is as confused as the regular punters on the street who only think of Jesus as giving them what they could, what they want. Jesus, the miracle maker, oh Jesus, make me, make, make me clean. Heal me. Give me more. Give me more. Nicodemus is as confused as the common people as to who Jesus was and what his signs, what his miracles pointed to. Jesus declares to Nicodemus, that you cannot understand me. You cannot know me in any significant way unless you are born again. You cannot understand the miracles I perform unless you are born again. In other words, you can't understand Jesus until you are totally and utterly transformed. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's a weird response. It's unusual, isn't it? Why on earth would Jesus declare that to Nicodemus? To speak about his inability to see God's kingdom unless he's been born again. What is Jesus driving at as he makes this pronouncement? What's he getting at? What's he on about? So let's uh, think about that for a little while. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to look at that statement from the end first, okay? So we're going to look at the idea of the kingdom of God. What was this kingdom of God that Jesus was talking about? Well, for Nicodemus and his fellow Jews, they believed that the kingdom of God was for every Jew. And every Jew was guaranteed a place in the kingdom of God unless you did something utterly horrific or you renounced your faith. You were pretty much a shoe-in to get the kingdom of God if you were born a Jew. And the second thing that Nicodemus believed and uh, the people of Israel at that time believed was this, that God's kingdom only began once you had died. It was only about eternity. And so there were these two views of God's kingdom amongst the Jewish people at the time. The kingdom of God to the Jewish mind was a home for the Jew only. But what Jesus comes to do is this. He comes to sweep away the false idea that God's kingdom was mono-ethnic and he declares that it's multi-ethnic. He gives them a much larger picture of who is in the kingdom than they had visualized. It would be a place where all would be welcome and where all would be united. It was a place where people would be in community and in a real deep sense sharing life together. The roots of this community, the roots of the members of this kingdom would go down deep so that they would be fused together as family. It would satisfy their desire and our desire for true community, for deep, meaningful relationships. It would be a place where isolation and loneliness would be banished. In Jesus' kingdom, all would be welcomed and adopted into this beautifully diverse family, as John would emphasize in verse 16. Not only would it be a place where everyone would be one, But if you sign up to be part of this kingdom, to live under God's perfect and good rule, it would have both a present and future reality. It would be much more than just an eternal place. It was going to be a place for the here and now. What Jesus is going to teach about the kingdom of God is this. When anyone puts their trust in King Jesus and wishes to live under Jesus' good rule here on earth, they begin to experience the kingdom of God now. The rewards of living under the kingdom of God are ours now. They immediately begin to benefit from being in the kingdom. They are adopted into God's family, becoming daughters and sons of the king. They receive God's help to live as part of his family in this world. They receive forgiveness. They receive an unconditional love now. All of these gifts and many, many more are given immediately and for eternity to those who place themselves under the good rule of King Jesus. But as we know, living in a world even with King Jesus is hard, isn't it? 
The world has brokenness within it. It's hard at times to remember that we are members of the kingdom of God, that we are under the rule and reign of the good King Jesus. Yet for those who accept the good news that Jesus is king, for those of us who gladly bow the knee to King Jesus, we are given a fresh perspective on the world, aren't we? We're giving a new outlook on the world. No longer do we see the world as a place of despair. No longer do we see it as a place with little hope. No longer do we decide to run away from it, but we run to it and we long to participate within it so that we can bring into the darkness, the spiritual darkness of this world, and also we seek to mend and fix some of the structural issues in society which are against God's will because we know that there is a great hope that we know we have a light, we have good news to bring into this world. As Christians, we must be those who radiate the light of King Jesus and who reflect the principles and values of King Jesus here in this world. We must be the ones who give generously. We must be the ones who, when we see need, we seek to meet that need. We must be those who stand to protect those who are vulnerable. We must stand with those who are frightened, who are afraid. We must be with those who are struggling, offering to them a fresh vision of the world, offering to them the hope that is to be found under the rule of King Jesus. But yet... All the goodness that we receive here and now is only a hint of what's to come. The kingdom of God is also an eternal kingdom. And the best is yet to come. The life to come, heaven, or the new earth, the new perfected earth, is described in various ways throughout the Bible. And uses a variety of pictures and images to kind of show us what this new earth will be like. And uh, one of the most vivid sections of the Bible uh, on this issue is found in Revelation 21, right at the end. Where the kingdom of God is described, it's a picture of what we're going to receive if we're under the rule of King Jesus. We're going to be dwelling in a perfect city, perfectly united with God. Perfectly united with one another. We're going to be living in a place where God wipes away and stops our tears forever. We're going to a place where death is dead. We're going to a place where everything is made new. Where there is complete restoration. The best life. The life that we long for is found in the kingdom of God. It provides us with a perfect home. It provides us with a perfect community. It provides us with perfect acceptance. All in the kingdom of God. So we've seen a little bit of what the kingdom is like. 
But how do you get there? How do you enter into the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus explains to us what the entry requirements to the kingdom of God are. So not only does Jesus correct the misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God was like, he then corrects the misunderstanding of who can enter into this kingdom. To enter into the kingdom of God, one must be born again in verse 3. This totally takes the wind out of the sail of Nicodemus and all his Jewish friends. God's kingdom cannot be entered into on the strength of a person's religious background or by good works. The kingdom demands not a reformation of your character, but a complete renewal of your whole nature. Not even Nicodemus gets into the kingdom based on his merit. Nicodemus, the man all Israel aspires to be, the one who is morally upright, who is well-respected, cannot turn the key that opens the door to God's kingdom. The idea of entry to God's kingdom based on your religious pedigree, your ethnic background, may all have but vanished. But in its place, we have put the idea of good works, haven't we? As a society, we assume that doing the right thing, that will gain us entry to heaven. As long as we're not too bad, that should see us into heaven quite nicely. Thank you very much. But Jesus will not let you off with believing in that view of entry to heaven. He says that your very human nature needs to be entirely restructured. This is not evolution or even revolution. This is transformation from another realm. We need the intervention and work of the Holy Spirit of God to bring about the necessary change so that we can enter into this kingdom. We need to be born again. This is a real struggle, isn't it? We want to do it ourselves. We live in a society that demands that we do things ourselves. You get ahead. You go for it. You achieve all that you can achieve. We like to assert our independency, don't we? But when it comes to entering into God's kingdom, into the kingdom of God, we must become like a totally dependent child on their parent. This is why the outcasts, the prostitutes, the tax collectors flocked to Jesus. They loved his message because it was obvious to them that they needed help, that they couldn't fix things out themselves. That's why, on the flip side, the religious rulers, the good people, the morally upright, rejected the message of Jesus at the time. For one group of people, it brought hope, real genuine hope. But to the self-righteous, to the powerful, to the proud those who felt they were in control, they lost hope with the message of Jesus. But the weak and the outcasts get it. So the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Are we like those who see themselves as weak and hopeless needing Jesus to do it for them? 
Or are we going to struggle along on ourselves, trying to transform yourself to gain entry into heaven? Jesus demands that you rely and rest on him and his work. I know this process of work, this process that we see here of being born again is a mystery. And it's a work that cannot be created or replicated from within us. It is totally and utterly the mysterious work of God. Jesus describes the work of the Spirit of God um, to bring about um, spiritual birth as like that of the wind. The ancient Jews knew little of how the wind worked, how it developed, how it shifted. And all that was evident to them was the impact that the wind had on its environment. The often mysterious nature of the wind is the way by which the kingdom of God operates, according to Jesus. People will see changes in the lives of those who are living in the kingdom of God and those who are living the kingdom of God ethic and they won't be able to explain it. It's inexplicable. They begin to see the humble person being courageous. They see kindness and consideration from those who have been mistreated. They see those who have reached the very top serving beneath them. They see people who generously give even though they never seem to want anything in return. They see the principles of the kingdom of God in operation in the world in which they inhabit as those who live under the good rule of Jesus display the self-giving nature of the king of that kingdom. So Jesus presents to us the kingdom of God. It's a place where we can achieve where we receive the best life. And he then explains how we get into it through God's work. And so verses 16 to 21 are kind of verses where John steps in to the scene. And verses 16 to 21 are kind of like a commentary. So it's like the actions happened in verses 1 to 15. And I was back in the studio, and John's giving some analysis of what we've just been talking about. John opens up with the truth of verse 16 about God's love. The Jewish mind simply had God's love resting on Israel, but the truth was that God's love rested on the world. It's not only a love that's broad in scope, but God's love had real depth to it. It enabled God to do something. It enabled God to give his one and only son. It's a love that leads God to act on behalf of the people of the world. God gives his only son. And John's going to explain what that means later on in the book. And what he does is he says this, that Jesus comes to earth as a man to suffer and die and thereby represent humanity and he bears the penalty of our rejection of God. Why does God do this? He does this so that we would not perish but have eternal life. He does this so we can gain entry into God's perfect and delightful kingdom. The king of the kingdom 
is going to sacrifice his life so that all people would have an open invitation to enter into his kingdom and to enjoy eternal life under his perfect rule. And then in verse 18, John helps us visualize our situation a bit. And he takes us into the courtroom. And he argues this, that if you believe that Jesus is God, if you are aware of your dependency on Jesus to transform you, then you are not condemned. You are freed from the fear of condemnation. You are declared innocent, and that declaration is the entry requirement into God's kingdom. However, on the other side, he also declares that there is a consequence to unbelief, and that is you stay condemned. Now, often, we like to think we can be pretty neutral on the issue of Jesus, neither for nor against him. Somewhere in the middle, an interested spectator. He's he's all right. He's got some nice things to say to me. However, the, the Bible, God tells us that neutrality is impossible when it comes to Jesus and who he really is. And the reason why neutrality is impossible is that we are born hostile to God. And the only way for peace to reign in our lives between ourselves and God is through the transforming work of the Spirit of God, which will allow us to be reborn. We are condemned already in the sight of God due to our humanity. We are born into hostility. We are born under condemnation because naturally we disregard God and his rule over our life and focus on our own desires and wants rather than his. Our human nature condemns us in the sight of God. But this is where the gospel comes in. We don't need to remain condemned. We don't need to be in that place. We can be freed from that damnation. We can be freed and declared innocent through the work of God. Such was God's determination to free us from the condemnation that he sends his son to sacrifice himself, to quash our spiritual conviction and to allow us into the kingdom of God. All of us have been presented with the opportunity to have our deepest longings for the best life met through accepting the offer made by God to come into his kingdom. It is ours to receive and to enjoy, and all that we must do is become completely and utterly dependent on God. For those of us who are members of the kingdom already, to my family, we need to reflect on what we have been given. And in response to the gift of entry in the kingdom, we now need to ensure that we reflect the values and principles of the kingdom in our daily lives so that we may show the outside world where the best life is to be found. And that is to be found 
in the kingdom of God, spreading the joy, the good news of life under King Jesus. Let us finish there. Amen. So...